Father, as we, look, as we look around at the majesty of the mountains with the snow, and we're just really grateful for your blessing, for the beauty of this world that you have created. And even though it has suffered through centuries of despolation, we're thankful that the, the, the basic goodness of God is always seen in the glory of what you have made. Father, I pray that we will constantly be encouraged in our faith, in our hope, as we understand that you are sovereign, that this is our Father's world. And even though sometimes we may be discouraged by the tragedy we see around us and the decay, Father, keep our hope strong, I pray. May we really be lights in a dark place. May we be centers of joy and peace. May our homes reflect the presence of Christ and those who come into our homes sense the peace of the Prince of Peace. Lord, I pray that today you will bless our study again. We're just grateful for the truths of the Word, and I pray that somehow we'll be able to put ourselves back into the uh, shoes of these people and uh, sense what they went through and realize the truths that they had to learn and to apply them in our own lives today. Lord, bless each one here in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to read from the 35th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a libation on it, and he also poured, out, poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear. For now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is, the pillar of Rachel's grave, to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. We've looked at Jacob's encounters with the Lord in this 35th chapter. First, the verbal encounter with God at the beginning of the chapter, and then what apparently was a theophany in the passage we read today. God, we're told, blessed Jacob. He blessed him in many ways. I think all of us have to testify to the fact that God blesses us in wondrous ways, sometimes ways that we don't even acknowledge at the time. God's blessing 
is always there for his people. Even in the midst of pain and sorrow and trial and tribulation, God's blessing is there. Jacob responded to this vision when the theophany was over, we're told in the passage, by setting up another pillar. Now, whether the pillar he had originally set up, the, the pillow that he had made into a pillar, when he first had seen the, the, the theophany 30 years before, we have no idea whether that was still vertical or identifiable, but here it seems he sets up another pillar, whether this means a single stone or a group of stones that he made into a, a kind of a monument, we, we can't really tell. But he anointed this particular pillar with olive oil as a symbol of consecration. And, and we understand throughout Scripture that the anointing of oil is, is symbolic of consecration uh, to God. In this instance, though, he went beyond what he did the first time, which was to pour oil on the pillar 30 years before, and that is he poured a libation, uh, what sometimes is called in the Old Testament a drink offering, uh, some wine that he poured over the pillar also in addition to the oil. And this is the first of what is called nesek, uh, the drink offering that is mentioned in Scripture, and it will be mentioned many times later, especially after... God gives the order of worship on Mount Sinai. The pouring of the wine over the pillar seems to be an act of devotion. Consecration, devotion, was an offering to God, which, of course, unknown to Jacob, was symbolic of the blood that Christ would one day shed on the cross of Calvary for atonement of sin. These, these symbols are found throughout the Old Testament. And not always did the Old Testament characters understand fully the meaning of the symbol, but they had a sense uh, of devotion, a sense of consecration as a result of the act that they, were, that, that they were performing. And I think it's very important for us to always remember that the performance of the act was not the goal of, of the worship. It was simply... Uh, an act, uh, a, an, a, a means of expressing, expressing worship, an act which facilitated the worship of God. It's what takes place in the heart that matters. And, and that really is, I think, important for us to, to bear in mind because so much of Christianity from its early centuries, at least from the fourth century on, be, became uh, a worship involving things, uh, the doing of things, the wearing of things, the not doing of something. And, and this were, these, these acts or non-acts uh, were what produced spirituality. Again, as the scripture teaches us very clearly, it's, it's the faith of the heart that matters, not the outward acts. The outward acts should be expressions of that faith but they do not create that faith in the first place. What's interesting is, in, we're told that Jacob again names the hill. Now, this is the third time we have the, the, the statement made that this place would be called Bethel, that is, the house of God. The extent to which... Now, remember again, he came to this hill where he had originally encountered God, and the scripture tells us that there was a city or a town or a village on this hill. It was called Luz, which meant almond tree. And, of course, it would be a city that was inhabited by Canaanites. Now, 
they obviously couldn't miss his coming. <laughs> Remember, Jacob's household was a very large household, and it spread out over a large number of acres. The number of tents pitched was probably in the dozens at least. And uh, with, with gigantic herds. And so the people of Luz knew he was there. And did they witness uh, this, this little act of dedication that uh, we've read? Well, we don't know. Uh, if they did, did they have understanding? Did they think he was crazy? We aren't told. But certainly they were wary of him because they were recipients of, what, of the news of what had happened at Shechem. And in their hearts, too, was the fear placed by God, certainly, of this man. And so, what was the impact of what he did upon their hearts? Well, the scripture is silent. We can only hope that maybe there was a positive impact of some sort. The next few verses from 16 through 20, which uh, we read this morning, deal with specifically, now moving to uh, page 61, uh, letter I, the birth of Benjamin, and the death of uh, Rachel. Jacob has fulfilled his vow. He moved to Bethel. The time in Shechem was a disastrous time for him and, and for his family. And so as an act of obedience, he has finally moved to Bethel, and, and he is living there because God said, don't just go there, God said, dwell there. To, to live there for at least a period of time. And so he was doing as he was commanded back in the first verse of this chapter. We don't know how long he was there. How long did he dwell at Bethel? Uh, was it weeks? Was it months? Was it a year? It's possible. But finally he decides it's time to go on to Hebron. Time to go down and move the whole family to the homestead. Now, as I mentioned to you before, the evidence in, in the passages uh, that we have been reading is that he had been home. He personally had probably been uh, home to Hebron, but his whole family had, been, had not yet been moved there. And so now he is moving his family to Hebron. Why? Well, certainly uh, there's the draw of the homestead. Uh, certainly, there's a sense that God is leading him to do this. I, I think maybe the catalyst of the moment was the word came that his father was not doing so well. And so he decided he'd better move his family there so that he could be with Isaac during his last days. Well, it didn't turn out to be last days. It turned out to be last years. Uh, it's very interesting the way uh, Scripture reports these things. Uh, it sounds like somebody's about ready to die, and you find out they're still alive 20 years later. It's kind of a long dying process in, in uh, some cases. Now, if you can visualize the trip from Bethel to Hebron, Bethel's up in the hill country, so is Hebron, but Hebron's a little bit higher in elevation than, than Bethel. And again, moving down the ridge route uh, towards, towards Hebron, he certainly would have passed within sight of uh, the city that would later be known as Jerusalem, probably the city of Salem, at least most feel that Salem, that uh, where Abraham encountered Melchizedek, was probably ancient Jerusalem. But it's just past that city that uh, we have the focus of these next uh, few verses. The trip would be about 30 miles, 
along that dirt route, moving southward. 30 miles is, is not a great distance, even for a group of people who have to move by foot, and, and even bringing all the herds along. We could imagine that even if every night the whole camp was set up, and tents were pitched and the whole deal, that probably it would not have taken even a week to make the journey from Bethel to Hebron. And yet in the midst of this journey, at a little town or near a little town called Ephrath, Rachel goes into what the scripture calls severe labor. Now Bethlehem's about halfway or close to halfway between Bethel and Hebron. Now over 10 years before, she had given birth to her first son, Joseph. And if you remember the account, as we read it and studied it at that time, that she publicly asked of God that he would give her yet another son. Now, ten years had passed. And in that ten years, she had not been fruitful. And no other child apparently was born of her, at least none the scripture records, and certainly no son. But now she is giving birth. She has, of course, become pregnant. When she named her son Joseph, uh, she named him Joseph, which means he shall increase. And w to whatever extent that was to be prophetic about the growth of the tribe of Joseph, which in the sons Ephraim and Manasseh would become the largest uh, of all of the tribes of Israel in the early years, I think what she meant in addition was that may he be increased by the birth of a brother. And, and that seems to be, have been her desire. She was desperately thankful to God and to Jacob to, to give birth to the first son because this, this broke the spell of her barrenness. But a second son would, would be an even greater blessing. And of course, as we know from reading the passage, she would pay a very high price, the highest price you can pay to bring that second son into existence. She probably became pregnant at Bethel, maybe as part of God's blessing upon Jacob for his obedience, for leaving Shechem and going to Bethel, setting up the pillar, for leading his family in worship, for returning to the type of godly leader that God intended for him to be in the first place. God had said to him at Peniel, you're not Jacob anymore, you're, you're now Israel. But as we noticed at Shechem, he was acting like Jacob and not like Israel. And, and now as he, God speaks to him and he obeys and he, and he, he traveled to Bethel and he worshiped God and he led his family in this worship, I, I think that's when God blessed him by allowing Rachel to become pregnant with her second son. And as they approached Ephrath, now, Ephrath meant nothing to them in those days, I'm sure. Probably just a little tiny village. Just outside, just north of the town, apparently, she went into severe labor. Scholars don't seem to know the real origin of the name Ephrath. It's thought to have meant abundance. And um, that, that's very possible because later on, on that same site, the town would be called Bethlehem. Uh, which means house of bread, seeming uh, carrying on that concept of, of abundance. We read in the 17th verse that uh, 
She went into severe labor, and the Hebrew word here implies fierce, cruel, oppressive. I mean, we're not talking about just a little extra pain here. We're talking about a lethal labor that she entered into at this time. Probably with some serious complications that in our day would probably have re resulted in a cesarean section, but such a thing was not known or practiced as far as we know at least, uh, in those days, did not seem to be an option. And as a result, the birth would cost Rachel the ultimate price, her life. She would not live to see her son grow up. She would not live to nurse her own son and to see this one bring joy to her husband. It's interesting that the midwife who was there at the birth was very concerned about Rachel. And the midwife understood that Rachel was dying. And, and so as soon as that baby was born, she let Rachel know this, the baby was a male so that hopefully in some way this might encourage Rachel and give her a sense of, of accomplishment here even in her last moments. Well, she apparently had just enough strength left to whisper to the midwife that his name should be Ben-Oni. And then she expired. Why did she name her son such? A name, it means son of sorrow. Well, certainly it was because of the great price she paid. She probably knew she was dying and she would not live to see the son grow up. And so he was son of sorrow. But I think beyond that, it was, he was the son of sorrow in that she knew that Jacob would take her death very, very seriously, and it would be a very hard thing for him. And that throughout his life, this son would be a reminder of the loss of his beloved Rachel, and thus he would be the son of sorrow. It's very interesting to me that uh, that seems to have been prophetic in some ways. Let me turn to the second chapter of Matthew. And we all remember the account of the Magi coming from the east and following the star and asking of Herod where the king of the Jews was born. And it was a shock to him. He didn't know there was any other king of the Jews in any way. Um, they were told to go to Bethlehem. In verse 16, and when Herod saw that he had been tricked, because, of course, the Magi didn't come back, uh, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah means a high place uh, uh, from above. It may be a geographical location. There was a Ramah not too far from Bethel. A weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Obviously, this is speaking of, of Rachel's descendants, the mothers of the children who were, in effect, daughters of Rachel, who lived in the area and who would lose their sons to this tragedy. Uh, you know, as we study the Christmas story, it seems that we read this, but I don't always know that we recognize 
the tragedy that surrounded the birth of Christ. The tragedy of, who knows, certainly dozens, maybe hundreds, of little boys under two years of old who were slain. Part of the price of the coming of Messiah. It's not on your outline, but you remember that uh, when the Magi were told where to go, it was because the scripture was given to them from Micah, which tells us that uh, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Uh, this would be the place where the Messiah would be born. It's interesting that Rachel, who is considered really to be sort of the, the mother of the Israelite nation, should give her life there at the place where Messiah would be born better part of 2,000 years later. Try to put yourself, if you can, into Jacob's situation. Jacob had four wives which, for which he paid a high price, but his beloved was Rachel. I mean, it was not his intention in the first place to have four wives. He wanted Rachel. And, and Rachel was the object of, of his endearment. And now his beloved is dead. And I think he was torn, torn between the great pain of this loss and the joy of the birth of his 12th son. As a result, he decided not to let the name Ben-Oni stand. And I think it was wise. Because if, if this child was forever named Ben-Oni, then every time the child's name was mentioned, the death of Rachel would come slamming into Jacob's mind. The son of sorrow. I mean, there'd be no way to get away from it. I mean, not that you want to forget your loved one, certainly not. But you have to get on with life. And you have to do the plan of God. And so rather than having this son's name be a constant reminder of the tragedy, of the, of the loss of his beloved Rachel, this, this constant opening of the wound, he renamed his son Benjamin, son of the right hand, which is kind of a joyful name when you think about it. The son of the right hand, the strength of the father in some ways. And we might say, with 11 other sons and all of them now older, why would he name the 12th the son of his right hand? Well, I think, at least in part, it was because he's the son of his old age, relatively speaking. When you study these passages, you have to really kind of redefine old age. <laughs> You know, I mean, he's about 100 years old here, which to us would seem pretty old to be having a son, even to be alive. But you have to recognize his father lived to be 180. And, and, and he would live another half a century nearly after this time. So, uh, it, it, but, but I think he had a sense that uh, maybe this was my last son. And so he will be my strength in my latter years. He'll be the baby, but he'll grow up to be my strength in the latter years. And so he named him Son of the Right Hand. Well, Jacob buried his beloved wife, and I think that was extremely difficult for him to do. Just north of Ephrath. 
Now, the scripture does not say one thing about the impact of this death upon the rest of the family. Certainly for Joseph, it was a great loss. But what about for Leah, her sister? Was the loss as great as it might otherwise be? Because obviously Rachel was her prime competition for the affection of Jacob. But what about the other two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah? Well, what would their thoughts be? Well, I, I think as we get into the next few verses and, and look at the tragedy that grew out of this, I mean, Jacob just goes from one tragedy to the next here. Sounds a lot like life when you, when you think about it. And you have to realize it's not as intense as we get it or feel it is because these years are compacted. And there are large periods of time about which the scripture is silent. You know, maybe 10 years go by and, and the scripture just leaps over it. You know, like I'll, I'll be pointing out here, if not today, next Sunday, that as you move from, well, the last few verses of the chapter, leap over a 20-year period. Jacob moves to be with his father, and then it says his father dies, but his father doesn't die for 20 years approximately. So uh, what, what we're doing is distilling all of these things in a, in a compact area, and so it makes it seem, sound like it's just bam, 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 bam. Sometimes we may feel it's, life is really that way, and, and to us in some ways it is because our lives are half as long, and often we have as much compacted thus in a, in a shorter lifespan. He buried his beloved Rachel just north of Ephrath. The exact location of the tomb is not known for sure, but there is a structure standing on the traditional site of the tomb of Rachel on the northern outskirts of Bethlehem today, and there is absolutely no reason not to accept that as the true site. Um, just because we can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt doesn't mean the traditional, uh, traditional site should be Rejected Because remember what we read in the, in the passage here. In, uh, in verse 19, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. And notice the last half of that sentence. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Well, to what day? Well, to the day of Moses when he wrote this, which was certainly 400 to 500 years later, probably 500 years later close to it anyway, uh, half a millennium later, this pillar was still there, and, and it was still acknowledged as the tomb of, of Rachel. But even beyond that, I put on your outline 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10. If we go there, we discover that even later in time, this was still known to be the place. 1 Samuel 10 verse 1, then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head. This is, of course, the anointing of Saul to be the first king of Israel. And kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, and etc. The rest of it's not important to what I'm trying to point out here. And that is that in Samuel's day, the location of the tomb was still known. And, and Samuel lived a better part of a millennium after the time of the death of, uh, of Rachel. 
And, and so if, if the tomb's location was preserved that long, there's, there's no reason, especially after Israel had conquered the land and occupied the land, for that site not to have continued to have been revered long after that and, and then later on, even today, to be the true site of the burial of Rachel. It's kind of interesting to note that Rachel, really, of the original patriarchs, is the only one not buried in the cave of Machpelah. The only one not buried in Hebron. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and uh, Sarah, and Rebekah, and Leah were all buried in the cave of Machpelah. Only Rachel was not buried there. I'm sure that had her death occurred after the Egyptian episode, she might have been buried there. I mean, obviously she would have had to have lived at a later time plane. But, you know, and, and the knowledge of how to uh, make a body last long enough to to, to bury it in a different uh, location. Um, just a question. That we, what, what you just said just popped my mind when I was reading this thing early part of the year. The woman least loved, least cared for is the one who is buried next to Jacob. I thought that was rather poetic in its own way. Yeah, I think it's a statement by the Lord of his love for Leah. Mm -hmm. um, we may miss out Sometimes on the rightful human love we should receive, but God's love is, is without limit and is without prejudice. And I think that's really an important point from, from Scripture to, to keep in mind. It's a good thing to note. I'd like to uh, look now at uh, verse 21 to the end of the chapter of Genesis 35. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paden Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob, buried him. Interesting how God lances the boils, isn't it? God doesn't perform plastic surgery over the ugliness that, that exists. God's not afraid to reveal human sin even at its ugliest and in its grossest forms. He doesn't gloss over the failure of his people which, of course, is a tendency we have to do. We try to gloss over our own sin or gloss over the sin of someone that we, we care about and try to uh, cover it up rather than, as God does, cut to the heart of it, to try to open it and, and let it be, be healed. God owns up to the fact, and I think this is a really important point for us because if we have a child who, who goes astray 
we can get under the burden of, the, of, of feeling that somehow we were terrible parents. And sometimes other people help us along and point out how we should have done this and should have done that and club us over the head with the scripture. And, and, and we get the sense that, oh man, my child wouldn't have been like this if I had been a better parent. And well, you know, there's probably some truth in it at some point, but I think most of us under God do the best we know how at the time. And God knows that. It's like this, the phrase you've all heard, you know. Uh, God gives us children when we have the strength to have them, but often we don't have the wisdom. When we have the wisdom, we don't have the strength. It just seems like it doesn't add up. Maybe that's why God had these people get so old before they had kids. I don't know. <laughs> but what we see here is a perfect heavenly father. A perfect heavenly father whose children go astray. I mean, a perfect heavenly father put a perfect Adam and a perfect Eve in a perfect world and they rebelled. What could God do more? There are times when we've done our best and the children still do not walk in the way of the Lord, at least for a time. And it's not good for us to club ourselves over the head, I don't think. It's good for us to pray. Pray a lot. I think the failure here, though, is, is to some extent Jacob's. I think he was doing the best he knew how, though. So we can't be too hard on Jacob. It's also, of course, the failure of Reuben. Now, Jacob was mourning over Rachel. And, and we can hardly fault him for that. But in his mourning, it seems that he dallied here. He parked his tent here uh, near Megdal Eater and camped there for who knows how long. Now, Migdol, wherever you find the term Migdol, that means tower. Eder means shepherd. Shepherd's tower, tower of the shepherd. It's, it's very common. If you get to travel in, in the Near East, uh, that is particularly in Palestine, you'll discover that stone towers still exist there. Uh, and, and these were towers usually built so that a shepherd could get up a little ways and he could look out over his flock and he could see if a wild animal was attacking or if thieves were coming and, and hence he could use that as a, a place for protection of his flock. This, this must have been an unusual tower in some way though because uh, of it being given a special name like this. Unless, of course, we use everything in just small caps here and just say this was a shepherd's tower and not the shepherd's tower. Whatever the case, he, he was camped at this particular location. And in verse 22, the implication is that he dwelt there for a while. The word dwelling is, is used, which usually means to, to live, to actually stay put for a period of time. And it was while he was here. You, you see, he was in the midst of a trip that shouldn't even have taken a week to go from Bethel to Hebron, and everybody was geared up for that. Of course, nobody was expecting Rachel to die. And certainly everybody could, ex could recognize that Jacob was going to suffer here, and, and time should be spent to, to commemorate Rachel, to bury her, and to mourn for her. But should it go on for weeks? Should it go on for possibly months? 
Well, whether we answer yes or no to that, it seems that it was that delay that opened the door to this, um, this tragedy in his family. Reuben was the eldest son, and how old was he? We don't know. He certainly was probably not yet 30, probably in his mid-20s, unmarried, probably with not much prospect of marriage because of the relationship with the Canaanites had not been good, and the whole deal that happened with Dinah pretty much closed that door. And, and his father and his grandfather had obtained their wives from the family up in Paden Aram, and there's no indication here that that was a possibility or a likelihood for him. But I'm not sure whether marriage was the real concern here or had much to do with with uh, the whole story. How and why he became involved with Bilhah, we're not told here. Scripture is, is very terse and blunt. As you read that passage, it just says, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. I mean, one piece of a sentence is all we have of this tragic event. But its repercussions were very great. Bilhah was Rachel's maid. And you remember the story. We went through it. Leah was having children, and, and, and uh, Rachel was not. And, and so Rachel gave to her husband Jacob her maid, Bilhah, so that by her uh, children would be born, and, and Rachel could claim them because of the laws of the land in that day. Well, Bilhah was thus... In effect, a wife, technically, I suppose, a concubine belonging to, uh, to Jacob. But she was the mother of two of Reuben's half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali. I mean, brothers that he went out in the field and tended sheep with. This woman was the mother. Now, she was probably at least 15 years older than Reuben because she had been given as Rachel's handmaid before, I mean, at the time of the marriage. And as, as we know, Rachel did not have children for, for many years. And so, even though Leah did right away have a child, we're still talking about a lady who had to be probably at least a teenager, I would think, to be a, a, a maid to, to, uh, to Rachel. I don't think this was a love affair. I, I think, and I've listed on, on the outline there, what may have been... The, the causes or the reasons for what happened here. First of all, it could have just plain, plain been flat out an act of lust on the part of Reuben. Could have been he was attracted to this, this lady. That's a possibility. But I think more likely, there's, there's something under the surface going on here. The second possibility I've listed there was that Bilhah played a role in this. Uh, whether she just encouraged it or actually sought this situation, it's possible that what she was doing was, was striking out at Jacob for not paying attention to her. Certainly, she was only a concubine. She had only been a maid, but she was a human being. You know, she had needs. She had emotions. She had desires. She had you know, a life that she wanted to live, and, and this man had been in her tent. She had borne him two sons possibly daughters. And so it was her way of saying, hey, I'm here. 
especially since he was spending all his time mourning for Rachel. But even more likely than that, I think, this was Reuben's deal. I, I think Reuben did this intentionally. And it was his way of getting at his father. Because whose son was Reuben? Leah's, not Rachel's. He was the firstborn. He was the one who was supposed to inherit the whole thing. But he was born to the less loved wife. And I think that what we have here is a kind of delayed reaction to the favoritism that had been given to Rachel over Leah over all the years and which Reuben had witnessed from the time he was old enough to understand the hurt of his mother because she was always second class in Jacob's eyes, it seemed. And Rachel was the object of his affection. So what is he doing here? I, I think that he is saying to his father, wake up. I'm important. You need to pay attention to someone else. I, I think what triggered this, it, it could have happened earlier, but I think what finally brought it to a head was the birth of, Je of Benjamin to Rachel. And then the naming of this son, son of the right hand. Well, that was Reuben's position. He should be the son of the right hand. He was the firstborn. And, and the right hand position is the preeminent position. I think in his own mind that was the last straw. And I think it was further aggravated by this excessive grief that his father was going through. The last time he delayed and dallied around back at Shechem, tragedy struck the family. It's fine. You know, grieve. Spend a week. But let's get on with the program. After all, there are three other wives. There are 12 sons and, and, and who knows how many daughters out there who need your leadership, Jacob, who need your love, who need your concern. We, we can't downplay the need to grieve. But we have to recognize at the same time it can be carried to excess. And when it's carried to excess, it becomes selfish. Because it's all focused in on the person doing the grieving. And a godly leader is supposed to be selfless. A servant. One who gives himself for the good of those he's leading. Give him time to work it through. But how much time does he need? Apparently Reuben considered it too much time. Now, there's no indication in this passage that force was used or that this was rape. I'm not saying just because it's not indicated that it wasn't. But the fact it wasn't indicated may mean that all of these factors came into play. That it was primarily Reuben's initiation, that it was an act of lust, that it was an act of vengeance, but that Bilhah also cooperated because of her own agenda. All of these factors could have played a role in what happened. You'll notice how this, the scripture is so brief, and it says, and Israel heard of it, period, 
Then it goes on and lists all the children of Jacob. It doesn't say he did a thing about it. He heard about it, but he did nothing, at least at that time. But we know he never forgot, and he carried it to his grave, that his son had carried out this act of insolence, and in his deathbed discourse, Jacob castigated his own son and deposed him from the position of preeminence that should have been his as the right of the firstborn. Reuben paid dearly for this act. And if it was an act of vengeance on his part, he paid a very high price for what he did. Let, let's turn to, to Jacob's final reaction. Did he bottle it up until his deathbed? Genesis chapter 49, we read at the beginning, Then Jacob assembled his sons and said, summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, which is a direct reference to this single verse. Because of this act of indiscretion, whether it was just indiscretion or was a purposeful act of vengeance against his father, he paid a very high price. Just as Esau paid a tremendous price in selling his birthright to Jacob, so Reuben, by this act of indiscretion, this act of violence against his father, paid a very, very high price. Is this a serious crime? Well, let me just Turn, you, you're all familiar with the passage, a very similar situation in, that Paul dealt with. I'll just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <coughs> Dealing with the Corinthian church, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who is so committed, has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." It was considered to be a heinous act by the New Testament time, at least. Not even the Gentiles do this. And it's no different from the situation we're looking at here at all. Reuben, of course, had lived at, uh, before the Mosaic Law. And, and so that was not there to teach him. 
But he knew what was right, and he knew this was wrong. And certainly he must have known that, that probably not even the Canaanites around him practiced this. And yet he did it anyway. And the scripture keeps repeating by either illustration or in actual words that whatsoever you sow, you shall reap. And he certainly knew that. That was in effect from the Garden of Eden to the end of time. Adam and Eve paid the price and they understood that. To play ignorant is just that. It's an act. And uh, Reuben was caught up in this it would pay the price of losing his preeminent position. And it would not be through Reuben that Messiah would come. Messiah would come through Judah. Of Leah also, not of Rachel. Theoretically, you, we could have argued that that should have been Reuben's place to have been the one through whom Messiah came, but such was not to be the case. And I'm not saying... It was because Judah was such a wonderful guy. Because we're going to read in another couple of chapters that Judah was a little bit of an indiscreet person too. And some of the things he did were less than ideal in his walk. Well, next week we'll look at the death of uh, Isaac. And we're going to find out something very interesting. And that is, he takes 20 years to die. 